previously on The Bid. So the way we framed this discussion over the last two days was really to say, on the one hand, we have a cycle that continues to be in place. It gets extended, again supported by further monetary policy easing. And at the same time, longer term, we're seeing limits across four dimensions, which was really the theme of the whole two days. Welcome back to The Bid. On our last episode, we heard from BlackRock's vice chairman, Philip Hildebrand, and others on key issues stretching the market environment today. Inequality, monetary policy, globalization, and sustainability. So if markets are at or approaching limits across these dimensions, what does this mean for how we invest? Today, we'll continue our discussion from the BlackRock Investment Institute's 2020 Outlook Forum. We'll hear from members of the BlackRock Investment Institute, like Jean Boivin, Elga Barch, and Mike Pyle, as well as investors like Tom Parker, Tony Despirito, and Bob Miller. We'll talk about the path forward for global growth, the limits on monetary policy and interest rates, and what this means for stock and bond investors. I'm your host, Jack Aldrich. We hope you enjoy. We've been in a bull market for over a decade, and our base case for 2020 is that the global economic expansion can continue. We see growth stabilizing and inflation, or the rising prices of goods and services, firming. There's been a lot of worry for markets that were late in this cycle, but we believe the risk of a full-blown economic recession remains contained. But the global growth story has many moving parts, from geopolitical issues like trade tensions to the economic trajectory of China to how consumers are feeling across the world, particularly in the United States. To get a better sense of what's at play, I talked to Elga Barch, head of macro research for the BlackRock Investment Institute, and Tom Parker, chief investment officer of Systematic Fixed Income. Elga, to pick up on one component of our discussions around growth generally, tariffs and geopolitics, how are you thinking about those things in the context of growth? Yes, so I do think that the growth outlook is very strongly influenced by these factors, especially if you have such a material escalation in geopolitical and trade tensions in particular as the one that we had over the last 12 to 18 months. So that was clearly a major headwind, a protectionist push, if you like. The question is whether that will continue into next year. Mm. I think there are a number of indications on why that might not be the case, and that could allow the global economy to pick up a little bit of pace, allow investment spending to also sort of normalize a little bit, global trade Mm -hmm. to normalize. But I do think that there will potentially be other factors that give especially corporates making investment decisions time to pause and maybe holding back. And I think there will be a lot of focus on domestic politics here in the U.S., As we're talking about geopolitics, let's talk about China. Tom, how are you thinking about particularly growth in China? Well, China has been extremely important for growth really in this whole post-financial crisis period is if you think about the rallies that we've had, you know, we've had the combination of monetary policy, but with a big boost from China spending. And so each of the kind of upticks that we've seen, even the surprise one in 2016, really had this China dimension to it. And so it becomes a really key variable as we talk about whether 
the slowdown will be kind of an L-shaped or if it's going to start to move up the other way. And I think a lot of it's going to be very dependent on does China stabilize or does China start to move up to some extent. And I think we believe that this is a little different in kind in terms of the nature of the stimulus and how internal it is to China rather than they're trying to save the world again and save their customers. So we don't really expect as much economic kind of rest of the world. We think it'll be good for China. Uh, it will help stabilize China, but we're not sure that it really helps the rest of the world as much as previous stimulus did. I wanted to draw back the conversation from China to the U.S., thinking about the U.S. consumer, a signpost for growth in the past. Elga, how are you thinking about the U.S. consumer? I think the U.S. consumer is currently in a very good state. It's really what keeps the U.S. economy growing because we can see that the manufacturing sector, notably investment spending, is really struggling. So it's really consumer spending, which has a high service component, that is really keeping the U.S. economy moving forward. And that's sort of a reflection of really strong fundamentals. You have a strong labor market with still a very robust pace of job growth. We have increasing pace of wage increases and still relatively modest inflation. And indeed, leverage that at least for the consumer sector overall is still gradually coming down. So all in all, very solid fundamentals. Yeah, it's been interesting from a market perspective is I think it is the underpinning of why the U.S. economy has been better than expected. And certainly every time we see job growth seemingly slowing, it seems to have a second life to it. And certainly the rate of decline is much slower than I think any of us would have predicted at this point in the cycle, which is making the consumer stronger. The watch things are to see if that starts to change, if we're seeing this weakness perhaps in profits and in corporate spending start to kind of result in things that seep their way into the consumer. And, mm. you know, there's some preliminary signs, but not much. And so it's really more a worry right now than something that you're actually seeing. I do think the consumer has benefited from the stimulus that nobody's really talked about, which is the huge drop in rates that we had when really the whole 10-year collapse. And from a markets and particularly an investment perspective, how should investors be thinking about these trends and factoring them into their 2020 plans and outlook? Yeah, I think everybody is kind of centering on this slow growth, slow inflation, which has actually been a very conducive environment for carry in the credit markets and for equities. The environment hasn't been as conducive under the surface as we've had a lot of factor rotation go on and huge returns to momentum with a momentum crash and then a value crash. And so we're seeing a lot of money kind of moving risk on, risk off. And in my mind, a lot of that is driven by the fact that the economic volatility is actually quite low. And so policy matters more. And we've seen a lot of policy volatility with trade and now with elections. So I think that's my biggest kind of worry into 2020 is that we'll probably see the same. You partially answered my question, but I was going to ask, what keeps you up at night? What worries me from an economic perspective is really the long-term impact of the sort of unwind of globalization, partial unwind, of course, because I do think that it puts some sand into the engine of the global economy. And what that means in terms of the long-term growth outlook, in terms of the long-term inflation outlook, the mix between growth and inflation is not clear. And if we had 
a less favorable combination of growth and inflation than we have had in the last several decades. So where you have maybe continued growth disappointments as well as inflation overshoots, that could be a very difficult environment for investors to navigate. So we're seeing two sides to the story. On the one hand, global growth is continuing, and a strong U.S. consumer has underpinned an especially strong U.S. economy. On the other, policy is uncertain, and globalization may be unwinding. Tom mentioned one driver of growth, interest rate cuts. In 2019, we've seen that central banks have been able to pull this lever as a way to keep the economy going. But interest rates have been testing limits on how low they can go. The U.S. has seen three rate cuts this year, and around the world, interest rates have even dipped into negative territory. We're nearing the limits of how effective monetary policy can be. To get to the bottom of this, I talked to Jean Boivin, head of the BlackRock Investment Institute, and Bob Miller, head of America's Fundamental Fixed Income. I asked them how they're thinking about the challenges ahead for central banks and what these limits might mean for bond investors. I think we need to distinguish what's happening now versus what's going to happen in the next few years. That's Jean Boivin. And I think one of the biggest questions for us is, over the next couple of years, if we do have a significant downturn, what really can we expect from central banks in terms of policy response? And I think we're coming to the conclusion that it's going to be pretty tricky. There's not much left in terms of the conventional way and even unconventional ways of central banks to stimulate the economy. We think like the interest rate channel is getting exhausted. And that raises a bigger question about what's coming next. I don't think we'll be uh, working to respond to the next recession. So then that requires venturing even more boldly into new spheres. All of that involves some more coordination between central banks and the government mm -hmm. in terms of spending and finding ways to support that through monetary support. And when you think about the year ahead, what key signposts will you be looking out for? Yeah, so I don't know if Bob agrees with this, but I think it's not about central banks. We'll be watching what the Fed is doing, of course. And, you know, we're in a pause now and we need to see what's come next. But I think the bigger question for me will be what the budget authorities, uh, the governments will be doing, because that's really where the biggest lever will be. I think market will be uh, very excited to see if there's more action on that front. And if it's not coming, then that's where the disappointment will be coming from. I think that's precisely the point. It's less about the near-term reaction from central banks. It's much more about the degree to which we get broad policy cooperation. So governments and central banks working more closely together, which you could argue is a decline in central bank independence, at least in a strict definition of the term. But I think this is critical to the next several years, not necessarily next year, but over the next several years, into the next decade. I think we're going to be facing situations where Central bank policy, as Jean described, has been exhausted to different degrees. There's a substantial amount of policy space left in the U.S., not necessarily relative to history, but relative to other central banks. But there's broad policy space, so the combination of fiscal and monetary and perhaps regulatory or even immigration policy, et cetera. Because if it's not occurring, I think we're going to see very stressful situations in markets. If it is occurring, depending upon the composition, at least it opens up the possibility of more elegant solutions. And actually to segue into the market component of this, how do you see all this reading through to this fixed income markets, particularly how are you thinking about opportunities in the year ahead? It's really tricky. You know, Jean said the traditional interest rate channel, so i.e. the factor that determines the return of your bond investment, the interest rate channel has been largely exhausted in a number of places around the world. And the question is, how negative can rates go in Japan or in Europe? And will we have negative interest rates in the U.S.? Well, in other places outside the U.S., 
rates are already low and or negative. So the benefit of your bond portfolio providing your diversification, your offset when stress is high and equities are under pressure, it's increasingly unclear that your bond portfolio is going to behave the way it has traditionally behaved in providing that type of protection. I still think it's very valid in the U.S. It's considerably less clear that it's a valid investment tool outside the U.S. Yeah, I completely agree. I think uh, on a strategic basis, you need to be a lot more selective and granular about the place where you uh, get your exposure on fixed income and protection. And I think the U.S. case is still there, and I guess you get more conviction seeing how far European rates have gone, so there's more room, but you want to maybe rethink carefully European and Japanese exposure. Yeah, and one small but important caveat with respect to the U.S., it works particularly well for a U.S. investor. For a non-U.S. investor, you're required to take the currency risk if you want the pure duration benefit of a long bond appreciation in a stressful environment. The fixed income diversification properties outside the U.S. have declined substantially. Bob, Jean, what keeps you up at night? One thing I would highlight, given where we started the conversation, is we both seem to be on the same page that we expect over the next few years more coordination between central banks and the governments. That can happen in a deliberate fashion, which would be what we hope was going to happen. But there's big risk around that. And one of the big risks is if it happens on a slippery slope without a plan where we open the door for monetary financing or financing budget deficits with central banks' money without proper guardrails, that could be a pretty scary world. And that's about undermining central bank independence. And given the populist waves we're seeing, I don't think we can discount that from happening. I would strongly echo that point. In the long history of the U.S. and other large economic engines globally, the deliberate, thoughtful, optimized approach to policy coordination rarely occurs outside a stressful situation, right? So most of the time, the decision-making process only gets to the point of making really difficult decisions when under tremendous stress. So I worry that we have to get into a higher volatility, more stressful economic regime in order to motivate the decision-making process to get to the point that we're talking about. Jean and Bob noted the challenges ahead for bond investors. With interest rates exhausted around the globe, bonds may no longer be able to offer the returns or the diversification benefits that they once did. So how about stocks? Large public companies have shown near-record profitability across geographies in 2019. This is a result of lower input costs created by global supply chains and new technology, declining tax rates, and expansion to new markets. This has created winner-take-all companies, particularly in tech, that have delivered hefty gains since the financial crisis. But can greater profitability and stock market gains continue in 2020, or are these trends at risk? I spoke to Tony Despirito, Chief Investment Officer for Fundamental U.S. Active Equities, and Mike Pyle, BlackRock's Chief Investment Strategist, to find out. Well, Jack, without a doubt, corporate profits have been rising over the course of this cycle. That's Tony Despirito. That's not atypical. That usually happens during a cycle, although we're at historic peaks. It's been driven by a number of things, whether it's the global supply chains, whether it's low interest rates, low taxes. All these have conspired to increase profit margins at companies, and that's been a good thing for investors. Expectations is for that to continue. I think that's a risk. I think as an investor, you want to look skeptically at that. And I think that's where individual stock picking comes in. So while I don't see a lot of upside for the market for margins from here, I do see a lot of specific companies that can grow their margins either through pricing power, cost-cutting, 
or through capital deployment. And so I think the opportunity is much more at the stock-specific level than at the market level. Let's talk about valuations. How do you define them, and how are you thinking about them? We look at valuations in multiple ways, but I think the most common way to think about valuations is P multiple price divided by earnings. At first blush, valuations look on the high side. You know, the market's about 17 to 18 times earnings. Historical average is 15, although we've been certainly way higher at different points in history. But I don't think you can look at valuations in a vacuum. I think you have to look at them relative to returns on other assets, interest rates, for example. So we're in a low-weight world. We have been since the global financial crisis. With the 10-year treasury at less than 2%, I think that tells you that the returns you can earn from equities, even at these valuations, is quite attractive. I look at the yield on the stock market. On the S&P 500, is 2%. That's higher than what you can make on a 10-year treasury. And, of course, the income from a 10-year treasury is fixed over the next 10 years, whereas the market, if companies do their job, that income, that dividend should grow over time. Yeah, I would add to that precisely because interest rates appear to be so structurally low. That means that equilibrium valuations for risk assets or really assets across the spectrum are going to look different than they have in history. And so comparing the P.E. today to the P.E. 20, 30 years ago is not necessarily the best way of thinking about valuations in today's context with the structure of today's economies and markets. And I think, not unlike Tony, I view risk assets, equities as kind of fair to sort of a little on the north side of fair, but so long as the expansion remains intact, so long as there continues to be both economic growth and that growth sort of flows through to growth in revenues and profits, feels like a still a sort of constructive attitude to sort of take towards equity markets. As you look towards 2020, what key signposts will you be looking for in the markets? One is monetary policy has been loose. Financial conditions have been strong. Those have all been supportive to the market. I expect that to continue, but that's certainly critical. The economy continuing to move forward. We expect low growth, but we expect positive growth to continue. So those are all positive things that we're thinking about. I think we expect financial conditions to remain easy, but also expect that the change in policy, the sort of dovish turn is largely behind us. And that dovish turn has driven a big expansion of multiples or the number of times over earnings the price is trading at in 2019. I think we're also, as Tony said, expecting growth to continue. And so I think a little bit the question for 2020 is with the expansion of multiples maybe mostly behind us from the stubbish turn in central banks, can we see a handoff to earnings growth again? That may not be the type of growth in a lower growth world that sort of supports the types of gains that we've seen this year. But again, I think that backdrop of supportive financial conditions, positive even if low growth, and valuations that still look in the range of reasonable suggest to us a pretty constructive attitude towards risk assets in 2020. Investors should have positive expectations for the market, but muted expectations, kind of mid-single-digit returns from here forward, I would expect to be more of the norm. And to that end, what keeps you both up at night when you think about risks to this scenario? I mean, I do think after two days of discussions, seeing the extent to which it's a shared assumption that as we go into 2020, there may be some temporary peace on the trade side. Obviously, that supported the rally and risk that we've seen over the last kind of month or two until that plane lands and we get that peace, I think is something I'm going to be a little concerned about. I think risk control is incredibly important at the portfolio level to always be thinking about what your risks are. And we spend a lot of time thinking about stress tests, various scenarios that we can imagine and how portfolios would react in those scenarios. 
But I also think one of the things that's most important is to stay invested in the market. I mean, I can draw you a 40-year graph of all the things that you could have worried about over the last 40 years. And if you use that as an opportunity to exit the market, huge mistake. So there's still opportunity in stock markets, but with some risks and a healthy dose of skepticism. But Tony mentioned one thing that's key, the importance of staying invested. Yes, we are seeing limits to markets ahead, but we also see the expansion holding up. So where did we net out? Growth and inflation are set to become key drivers of markets in 2020. Monetary easing from central banks is largely in the rearview mirror, and a temporary trade truce looks likely. We see global growth making a shallow recovery in the first half of the year and don't expect a recession. This causes us to be moderately pro-risk when it comes to investing. But markets will be tested in 2020. The U.S. presidential election looms large, with a wide range of policy outcomes. China seems less willing to stimulate its economy. Corporate profits face challenges ahead, like rising wages and increased regulatory scrutiny. And negative or ultra-low bond yields make government bonds less able to act as a portfolio stabilizer in stock market sell-offs. These and other issues will be critical to the year ahead. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Bid. We'll see you next time. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S., this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL, telephone plus 44020-7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances.
In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com. mx Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.